welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I had a conversation this evening with one of our members, and he was mentioning that he was enjoying the study in Isaiah so far, and he said, I really like Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 40 because of my affection for Handel's Messiah. And I said to him, you know, it's interesting that those are the two portions of the book of Isaiah that most people do know. Most Christian people, by and large, are familiar with those two sections, primarily because of Handel's Messiah and because Isaiah 53 just resonates with everybody in looking forward to Christ and what he's going to do. But there's a whole lot more to the book of Isaiah, and actually it is the theme of the book of Isaiah that most people ignore. They like those parts that look forward to the coming Messiah, and then they see those parts through their own lens, through their own eyes. You know, the Bible says that the chief sin of human beings is our egocentricity, our complete self-reliance. And as a consequence, people are really interested in the parts of the Bible that are about them. And so they're very interested in that stuff. God is gracious, and therefore he's going to save me. And Christ died, and he died for me. And, and so when you get into the Israelological parts of the Bible, oftentimes they will just kind of tune out, and a very large part of the Reformed Christian church has just decided not to deal with Israel at all in the Old Testament and just say that Israel is now subsumed into the church in some way. But the next part that we're going to read from the book of Isaiah is really a summation of the whole book. And yet it's going to be deeply Israelological. And the first part of chapter 1 that we've looked at for the last two weeks is God laying out his case against Judah and saying how terribly guilty Judah is. So there's no question that Judah is really guilty and sinful in God's eyes. So then what does God do in response? Does he say, well, that's it. You're a harlot. You've chased after other gods. You have chased after foreign gods that are not gods. You've gone and worshipped under the oak trees and in the groves, and you have turned away from the worship of me, and therefore I'm done with you, therefore I'm going to put you away permanently. You are an erring wife, though I've been a husband to you, and so because of your harlotries, I'm finished with you. Is that what God says? Well, the second half of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 is God's resolution to the problem. He has already pled with Judah and said, reason, be reasonable, think about it. Your sins are like scarlet, but I will make them white as snow again. 
so there is this plea from God that he again knows they're not going to do they're not going to be able to do it they're not going to be able to wash themselves and clean themselves up sufficiently to be able to stand before a holy God so what is God going to do the big picture of Isaiah is he's going to send the Messiah he's going to send Emmanuel he's going to send God with us and because of the sacrifice that we read in Isaiah 53 because of the sacrifice of Messiah Therefore, the sins of Israel are washed. Therefore, Israel can have hope again. But remembering that the whole of the book of Isaiah is about God's dealings with Israel, people have a tendency to read that stuff about Messiah coming and about by his stripes we are healed and then neglecting the fact that that's Israel's Messiah who has come to Israel because of Israel's sin and because of the break of the relationship between God and Israel and so God is restoring that relationship and the way that God is going to restore the relationship here in the second half of Isaiah 1 is God is essentially going to say well since you can't do it and since in your rebellion you won't do it I'll do it and that is everything we know about the God of the Bible. We know that he is not only gracious and long-suffering, very, very long-suffering, but we also know that he is faithful to his word, and we know that he is faithful to his promises. And he has made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he is not going to turn his back on those promises. And because he is faithful to his own word and his own promises, even the fact that Israel is in rebellion against him is not enough to keep God from faithfully doing what God has said he is going to do. And that is really good news for us because we trust that God is going to do for us everything that God has said he is going to do for us despite us, despite how we are, despite our failing him on a repetitive basis, despite our occasional lapses and lacks of faithfulness. Nevertheless, we are counting on God to be unchangingly gracious and long-suffering with us. But the reason that we know God is that kind of faithful, long-suffering God who doesn't turn from his own word is because of what the Bible says about God's dealings with Israel, where he says, as we're about to read, and then we're going to read it time and time and time and time again in the book of Isaiah, we're going to read God saying, you are a harlot. You are unfaithful to me, but I'm going to fix it. I'm going to repair the broken relationship. You can't so I'm going to do it. And Christian people, definitionally, Christian people will say, I believe the Bible. Where do you get your faith? What do you believe in? What do you read? The Bible. I believe the Bible. Okay, then you also need to believe this. You also need to believe what we're going to be reading for the next year or better about God's faithfulness to absolutely rebellious Israel. And all of the reformed folk and other folk that I mentioned a moment ago who have kind of written Israel off 
will usually say that it is Israel's rebellion and Israel's sinfulness that is the reason that God finally gave up on Israel, finally divorced Israel, has finally put them away permanently, and now has turned his attention to the church. And it's all about the church now. And the only Israelites that are going to be saved or redeemed are those that are in the church. And God is done with national Israel. But we're going to read it tonight that God guarantees a glorious future for national Israel. And we see that everywhere. I have said it so many times, you're probably sick of hearing me say it. I know I'm sick of saying it. But the prophets of Israel all speak with one voice. They all say the same thing, which is, you, Israel, nationally, are guilty as you can possibly be, and God is going to be faithful to you anyway because of promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which promises he's not going to break even though you broke his covenant. So with that introduction, let's look at what Isaiah says about God's faithfulness to Israel. And then if we as Christians say, I believe the Bible, you are obligated to believe this as well. Because it's part of the Bible. And it's not just a small part of the Bible. It's a big part of the Bible. It's a continual theme of the Bible. And yet people will just cast it aside in favor of, well, I just want to talk about what God did for me. Or I just want to talk about the doctrines of grace. And I want to talk about the Synod of Dort. And that's the whole story. That's what it's about. But I'm going to ignore all that stuff about Israel. And you cannot understand biblical eschatology correctly if you don't understand Israel. As the old saying goes, and I think the saying goes back to MacArthur originally, but the phrase is, if you get Israel wrong, you get the Bible wrong. If you get Israel right, you get the Bible right. Last week, we got as far as verse 21. God is continuing to lay out his case, and this is his case against the faithful city. That's Jerusalem. Remember that this is the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So Isaiah is not talking to individuals. He is talking to national Israel specifically national Judah, collectively under the heading of Jerusalem, that city. Which, by the way, I have to mention, is the same way that Jesus spoke when he looked over the city and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets. It's the same way that Isaiah is speaking. Jerusalem, collectively. How the faithful city that's Jerusalem, has become a harlot. I have stressed in times past that I think the reason God has chosen this particular relationship is because there are very few things that are more painful to a husband than the reality that his wife has been unfaithful to him. But then on top of that, to say that she has been unfaithful and she has sold herself to a lot of men. She wasn't just falling in love with another man and then had an affair, 
but she went out and made money by having sex with other men. That is the destruction of the marriage contract and the marriage covenant. And God says, I was a husband to you. You can read it in Jeremiah 31. I just mentioned it this past Sunday. When God says new covenant, he says, not like the old covenant that I made with them when I took them by the hand, when I took them out of Egypt, which covenant they broke, though I was a husband to them. So God is reciting that marriage covenant again and saying she broke the marriage covenant. Jerusalem has broken the marriage covenant by becoming a harlot, selling herself for money. That's the way that God views Jerusalem chasing after other gods, going and looking after foreign gods which are not gods. That is akin to harlotry. So it doesn't get much worse. I'm just trying to emphasize it's bad. Last week we read, you are sick from head to toe. You haven't been banished. You haven't had oil put on your sores. Your sores are running. You're just, you're totally sick. Now it's, you're a totally sick harlot. I mean, just everything about you is bad. Everything about you is wrong. She who was full of justice. At one time, Jerusalem was the place where God chose to place his name. It was the place where his Temple was the seat of worship on the planet that was ruled over by King David, a man after God's own heart, and the law of the land was the law of God. But now they have foregone all of that, so she who was once full of justice has now become a harlot. Righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers lodge in her. God is going for all the extremes he can go for in describing Jerusalem at this point. In their turning away from him, rather than righteousness being the hallmark of their behavior and their lives and their worship, he sees their practices as murderous, which is why he could say things to them like, I'm sick of your offerings. Don't bring your offerings to me anymore. I cannot endure your iniquity and your solemn assemblies, and I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing with them. You can understand why God would be that tired of them when he describes them as completely diseased, murderous harlots doesn't get much worse than that. Your silver, once upon a time you were pure. Silver throughout the Bible is a reference to purity, is a reference to a pure faith. Your silver is now become dross. In other words, what was once pure is now completely polluted. And your drink, that is a reference to strong drink, to wine. Your drink is diluted with water. In other words, even your festive drinks no longer have the value to you that they used to have. They are diluted just like your silver is diluted. Your rulers, the ones who ought to be leading you in righteousness, are rebels. And they are companions of thieves. They're the ones who are supposed to stand up for righteousness. They're the ones who are supposed to treat people fairly and honestly 
and dispose God's law in a just and proper way, and instead they have become rebels and thieves. How many times did we see, as we were reading through Solomon's Proverbs, how many times did we see Solomon bring up, don't take a bribe, because bribery perverts justice. If you're willing to judge in favor of one side because that side has the ability to bribe you and give you something to benefit you, that is not genuine justice. So what does God say about Jerusalem? Everyone loves a bribe. And they chase after rewards. And then they're not just. They do not defend the orphan. Nor does the widow's plea come before them. They can't be bothered to hear from orphans and widows because orphans and widows cannot benefit them in a personal or financial way, which is why they're more concerned with bribery and chasing after those things that they consider to be valuable to themselves. And they don't care about the justice of widows or orphans. Okay, so all of that collectively is God's description of Jerusalem. And it ain't good. There's, there's no little highlights in there. They're just as corrupt as they can be. So then at that stage of corruption, is there any way when God says, wash yourself, make yourself clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Are they going to be able to do it in their level of corruption? No, even when he pleads with them, come now, reason with me. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they're red as crimson, they're going to be like wool. If you consent and obey, then you will eat the best of the land. But they're not going to consent and they're not going to obey. So the solution to the sin problem, and this is just one of the basic doctrinal realities of the Bible demonstrated here in God's relationship with Jerusalem, the sin problem cannot be solved by the sinner. The person who is depraved in their corruption doesn't have the ability to lift themselves up out of their depravity, out of their corruption, and say, right, I got it, God, I'll fix that. You can't fix it. You're too depraved to fix it. And in fact, as I keep using this phrase, but it's just so genuinely true, and I don't think people understand the depth of it, human beings are too corrupt and depraved and sinful to have a real understanding of how depraved and corrupt and sinful they are. So much so that people who don't know God don't even know that they're sinning against a righteous, holy God. And they continue in their rebellion because they start with their ego. Whatever is good for me, whatever is just for me, whatever feels good to me, that's what I'm going to do. Because they don't understand the righteous and the holy God who demands righteousness and holiness out of them. They think they're just fine. How many times have you heard people say, well, when I get up there, if there is a heaven and if there is a God, I'll be fine. I'll get in. I'm a pretty good person. Well, they're a pretty good person in their own estimation in their own eyes, but they're not a good person in God's eyes. Therefore, sinners cannot solve their sin problem. So at verse 24, God starts declaring, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to solve it. You can't do it. Even though I've 
commanded holiness out of you. I've commanded you to repent, change your ways, turn, become righteous. I've told you all that. But because you can't do it, I'm going to do it. God is going to ultimately get all the glory because the solution to the depth of our problem is always in God and not in the least within us. We are full of our sinfulness, our rebellion, and our depravity. We can't fix us, and yet God, out of astounding grace and mercy, is going to solve our sin problem for us and then cause us to be righteous in his presence because of promises he made that were better than the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, promises that he made to his own son. And for sake of those promises... We're going to be eternally glorified, sanctified, justified. And that is thematic all the way through the Bible. That's the answer that Christianity offers. You're depraved and you need to know how depraved you are, how sin sick you actually are. But there is an answer and the answer is not you. And way too much of modern religion says the answer is you. You get busy. You do the work and then you'll be okay. Right here in Isaiah, it is demonstrated yet again in God dealing with Jerusalem and saying, you are utterly depraved, you are utterly sick, you are completely a whore, there is nothing good about you, there's nothing sound in you, and even what was once your purity, I've now turned into deluded dross. That is how sick and depraved you are, so the solution can't be you. You get it? Am I driving this point home enough? Because you really need to understand how bad the bad news is in order to really glorify God for the good news that's coming. Starting at verse 24. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, that means the God who's in charge of his whole creation, all the armies of heaven, all the inhabitants of the earth, he is the one who is Lord over all of them. And if that weren't enough, the mighty one of Israel. Previously, Isaiah had called him the holy one of Israel. But now it's the mighty one of Israel, the one who has all the power and all the might. He's going to exercise his power and his might to solve your problem. He declares, Ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries. God is going to exercise his power to get rid of his enemies and those that have drawn his people away from him. And I will avenge myself on my foes. There's that judgment language again. That same judgment language that Paul took to Mars Hill when he told them, you don't know who this God is, but this is the God who has fixed a day, a day where he is going to judge all mankind by the man that he has chosen, by Jesus Christ. This theme of God has specified a time, a moment, a period on the calendar. There is a particular time coming, a day coming, when God is finally going to unleash his wrath, and he's finally going to judge according to his own righteousness. And he is going to be relieved of his adversaries, and he will avenge himself against his own foes, and, speaking to Jerusalem, and I will also turn my hand against you. 
Jesus comes onto the planet and he starts using the same language Daniel uses, the same language that Jeremiah uses about a time of trouble coming, a day of the Lord, a time of trouble coming such as never was or ever would be again. Jeremiah calls it the day of Jacob's trouble because specifically it is that day when God is going to cleanse Israel and he's going to do it through judgment. I will also turn my hand against you. For what reason? To wipe you out? To be rid of you altogether? To say, that's it, you've played the prostitute for the last time, I don't want to hear any more from you? I will turn my hand against you, and I will smelt away your dross as with lye. Lye is a kind of soap. I am going to clean out your dross. A moment ago, he explained to them that their silver had become dross. Their silver had become polluted. God says, I'm going to clean out the dross. I'm going to purify the silver. I'm going to restore you back to what you were originally meant to be because only God can do that. They could not do it for themselves. I will also turn my hand against you and I will smelt away your dross as with soap, as with lye. And I will remove all your alloy, which is all of the impurities that are in the silver. Then I will restore your judges as at the first. He just described the judges. He just said, everybody's looking to take a bribe. Everybody chases after rewards. The rulers have become rebels. They are the companions of thieves. So what does God say he's going to do? I will restore your judges as at the first. Remember that he began by calling Jerusalem the righteous city. Once upon a time, they were righteous. Once upon a time, they were ruled after a man, after God's own heart. Well, this time, it's going to be the son of David who's going to rule from Jerusalem. And in the process, going to reestablish Jerusalem in righteousness. I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning. And after that, you will be called city of righteousness the faithful city. Now that's a big contrast from you are a prostitute, which is the ultimate unfaithfulness. He says, I'm going to restore you until you are known as the faithful city. Quick question, has that happened yet? Not yet. No, has not happened yet. That means it is waiting to happen or the Bible has just declared something that it doesn't mean or it's declared something that we have just completely misunderstood even though I have gone carefully through the details here to demonstrate that it's Jerusalem that was unfaithful so it's Jerusalem that God is going to make faithful again. The language is very specific. The language is not hard to understand. God is going to restore Jerusalem until it is known once again as the faithful city. Verse 27, Zion will be redeemed. That's Jerusalem. Judah, collectively, they're going to be redeemed. The language of redemption is one of the favorite Christian ideas. We love to say that we've been redeemed from our sinfulness by the finished sacrificial work of Christ. And that's absolutely true. But the finished sacrificial work of Christ also redeems Jerusalem, 
when we get to Isaiah 53, whenever that is, if Jesus doesn't come first, if Jesus tarries, we'll eventually get to Isaiah 53, and you're going to see that language of redemption and fulfillment, and God is satisfied. And in context, Isaiah puts it all in the context of Jerusalem, because that's who he's prophesying to. So yes, it's true that we as Christians are redeemed by the finished work of Christ, and yet it is Jerusalem itself, Zion itself, that has the promise of redemption. In other words, the promise of redemption belongs to the Jews first and also to the Gentiles. Just like the gospel, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. The promises of God belong to Jerusalem first, and then from Jerusalem, those blessings are going to flow out to the other nations, but to the Jew first. And far too often, people try to eliminate the whole Jerusalem connection and then expect God to still pour out blessings on them. But it is God's plan and intention. He has already laid out the blueprint that those blessings are going to come to those nations through Jerusalem. And you can't avoid that. You can't escape that language. Zion will be redeemed with justice. Now that may mean that God is just when he redeems them or that he is going to redeem them so that they become just again and her repentant ones will be redeemed with righteousness. So justice and righteousness which once belonged to the faithful city are going to be restored to the faithful city according to the promise of God. Inasmuch as it is based on the unchanging word, nature, character of an unchanging, faithful God, and God has declared he's going to do it, what are the chances he's not going to do it? He's going to do it. He has to do it. Verse 28. But, remember, this is a time of trouble, such as never was or ever would be again, but the transgressors and the sinners will be crushed together. And those who forsake the Lord shall come to an end. God is going to purge the city of Jerusalem. God is going to make sure that it is a righteous city full of justice. And sinners and rebels and those who hate God are going to be purged from Jerusalem. Then he describes them in verse 29. After he has redeemed them. Who is it that he's redeeming? The unfaithful. Why are they? In what way are they unfaithful? They have chased after foreign gods. What is their chief demonstration of chasing after foreign gods? Well, they have gone and worshipped the nature gods, which are oak trees and groves. And so God says to them, surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you used to desire. And you will be embarrassed at the gardens, those are the groves, which you have chosen. God's going to cause them to repent. God's going to make them ashamed of the fact that they left him and went and worshipped nature. They went and, to use Pauline language, that they went and worshipped the creature rather than the creator. And they're going to be ashamed of that. They're going to be able to look back on it 
So this yet again is evidence that God is talking to the same unfaithful people who he has just described. The same unfaithful people who he has just laid out his case against. The same sinful people who are sick through and through and unfaithful and chasing bribes and everything else is wrong with them. He says those people are going to be ashamed of what they once were. For you, this is Jerusalem collectively, for you will be like an oak whose leaf fades away or as a garden that has no water that shrivels up and dies or a strong man who will become like tinder. In other words, he's just going to burst into flame and his work is going to be the spark. The work of his hands, the work of his man-made religion is going to cause him to just burn away. In other words, all those things they used to delight in, chasing after the oaks, chasing after the gardens, chasing after the, the groves to Samiramis, chasing after all their nature gods, they're going to be embarrassed of it and it's all going to burn away. It's all going to be removed from them utterly. Once upon a time, they thought they were strong men. They thought they could do whatever they wanted. They thought they could rebel against God. I'm strong. I'll do what I want. He says, that, that's all going to burn away from you. Thus, they shall both burn together, and there will be none to quench. There'll be nobody that can put out the fire when God decides to send a purifying fire that is going to purify Jerusalem. Chapter 2. The word of Isaiah, the son of Amos, what he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. He said it twice now. This is about Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come about that in the last days. Now he's getting all eschatological on us. In the last days. When are those last days? We don't know. We just know it's not yet. Because it hasn't happened yet. Jerusalem has not been permanently purified yet. So the last days that he's referring to here haven't happened yet. Now it shall come about in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord. What is the mountain of the house of the Lord? It's Jerusalem. It is a city that is built on a hill, built on a mount, and that's where the house of the Lord is. That's where the temple is. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. In other words, all the other cities, all the other great cities, all the other great nations. You may recall that in the book of Revelation, mountains are references to, to cities, to majesties, to kingships. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above all the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And what will they do when they come? Many peoples will come to it, to Jerusalem, saying, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Who's that? It's the God of Israel. To the house, to the temple, to the worship place of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths for the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord will go forth from Jerusalem. Okay, so all the other nations that receive blessings from God receive them because of their affiliation 
with Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place, always has been, always will be, where God chose to place his name. That language is throughout the Bible. This prediction, by the way, is a very well-known prophecy. I've told you the last couple of weeks that Micah is prophesying around the same time. He is a contemporary of Isaiah. And he actually says this exact same thing. Adequate witness can be found in the Bible. And they both say the exact same thing about the exact same city and how God is ultimately going to redeem them. Take a look at Micah chapter 4 for just a minute. Keep your finger there in the book of Isaiah and turn to Micah chapter 4. And we're going to read the first three verses. And it's going to sound remarkably familiar to you. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. And it will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. The Gentiles, the other nations, the people who are not the Jews are going to stream to Jerusalem. Verse 2, and many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us about his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. And then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and nations will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. At this point, is Jerusalem training for war? Yeah. yeah. At this point, are Gentile nations training for war? Yes. Yeah, well then this hasn't happened yet. Now go back to Isaiah and you're going to see Isaiah saying the same thing, starting at verse 4. He will judge between the nations. And he will judge between the nations, and he will render decisions for many people. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. So what have we seen so far? We've seen rebellious Israel, rebellious Judah. There is no way that they can clean themselves up even though God tells them how, and God commands them to turn, to change, to repent, to come back to him. They can't do it. He knows they can't do it, so God says, I'm going to do it. Me, the God of Israel, the mighty one of Israel, the Lord God of hosts, I'm the one who is going to be relieved of my adversaries. I'm going to bring judgment. I'm going to avenge myself on my foes, and I'm going to punish Israel, but the result of it is I'm going to purify you. I'm going to clean you. And then as a result, your counselors are going to be like they were at the beginning. Your judges are going to be like they were at the beginning. And you're going to be called a city of righteousness and a faithful city. And then the Gentile nations are going to come flow to you. And the blessings are going to flow through you out to the Gentile nations. As the Gentile nations say, let's go up to Jerusalem and learn about the God of Israel. Let's learn about his law. He's the one who is in charge. You got all that? That's how faithful God works. That's how the God of the Bible works. He makes promises. 
and he keeps them, even with rebellious people like us. Yeah, thank God is correct. Okay, keep reading. So come, verse 5, come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. For thou hast abandoned thy people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with influences from the east, and they are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they strike bargains with the children of foreigners, and their land has also been filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land has been filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land has also been filled with idols, and they worship the work of their own hands, that which their fingers have made. So, the man, every man, the NASB adds the word, the common man. The man of Jerusalem will be humbled. And the man of importance will be abased. So that means whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're powerful, whether you're a slave, whoever you are within Jerusalem, you're going to be humbled and you're going to be abased. In what way? In the punishment that God is going to bring in order to abase them, in order to purify them. But also, look at what Isaiah says, and do not forgive them. In other words, don't just overlook it. Correct them. Judge them appropriately and accordingly so that their silver can be purified again, so that you can wash away their dross. And then as a result of that, as a result of the punishment of God, this is how people are going to react. Remember that he has already said that it's going to be common men and it's going to be important men. It's going to be men of no power and men of great power. They are all going to be judged by God in order to humble them and abase them. And how are they going to react? Verse 10, enter the rock, hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. Does that sound familiar? It's from the book of Revelation as well. Go over and look at Revelation chapter 6. We're going to look at verse 15. Revelation chapter 6. Verse 15 and 16. Well, we'll start reading at verse 12 so that you get the context. And I looked when he broke the sixth seal. And there came a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when they are shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and every island were moved from their places. Sounds like a scary event. Mm -hmm. There are celestial disturbances and terrestrial and geological disturbances going on, and that is obviously the judgment of God happening to Israel. Look at verse 15. And the kings of the earth, those would be the great men, the powerful men, and the great and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves 
and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day. There's that thing, that time, this moment that God has already set up, this moment of judgment that is coming, this day of the Lord, for the great day of the Lord's wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So the book of Revelation is completing the very story that we're reading here at the beginning of Isaiah, that when God pours out his final judgment and correction on Israel for the purpose of purifying Judah and Jerusalem, then common men are going to be humbled. Men of importance are going to be abased. They're going to enter the rocks. They're going to hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The only difference between what we read in Isaiah and what we read in Revelation is that it is the terror of Yahweh that is being poured out but in Revelation, we're also told, and it's the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus is also introduced to the process because it is the death of Christ that is the ultimate redemptive purifying work for Jerusalem, and it is the wrath of the Lamb that is the judgment against Jerusalem in order to purify them. So it is Jesus who is accomplishing the things that God spoke way back here in Isaiah. Why? Because in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. God made this promise. This is what's going to happen. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I am going to purify you. This is the way I'm going to correct you. But then that promise God has made is satisfied and fulfilled in Christ himself coming back in the wrath of the Lamb and human beings react by running from it and saying, hide us from the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb because it is that long-predicted day of the Lord. It's the day of God's wrath and who can stand. And now we understand that the day of the Lord and the time of the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, is not for the purpose of destroying Jerusalem utterly and completely, wiping out Israel, wiping out all the rest of the people on the planet so that God is done, therefore, with Israel. Instead, what it's for is for the purification, restoration, and redemption of Jerusalem. But God's going to purify Jerusalem again. I mean, when you read that language that says people are going to say, let us go, to the mountain of the Lord, the house of Jacob, so that he may teach us concerning his ways and so that we may walk in his paths and the law will go forth from Zion and the word of God will go forth from Jerusalem. When you read God saying, I am going to turn my hand against you, but it's just going to smelt away the dross as with lye, as with soap, and I'm going to remove all the alloys, all the impurities, and I'm going to restore your judges as at the first. I'm going to restore your counselors as at the beginning, and after that you will be called a city of righteousness, a faithful city. Now we get a big picture of what God is planning to do with Jerusalem. So Jesus comes to the planet and starts talking about the day of the Lord and starts talking about the ultimate display of the day of God and the time of Jacob's trouble, and that is completely in league and in line with what we already know from the prophets of Israel in the Old Testament. It's all one continuous story. 
and you can't play the New Testament against the Old Testament. And you can't say in the New Testament, there's all these new promises and all that old stuff doesn't count anymore. You can only understand the New Testament stuff if you understand the Old Testament stuff. Because it is working sequentially. It is working cohesively. It is the plan of God. He has already described it in the Old Testament. And it's playing out in the New Testament. Okay, last verse for the night then. As a result of all that, as a result of everything God's going to do there at Jerusalem, the proud look of a man will be abased. I began tonight by saying, once again, the most oft-repeated sin in the Bible is the sin of pride. So what is God going to do? He knows that it is the pride, the arrogance, the self-sufficiency, the egocentricity of Judah that has caused them to go play the harlot and turn away from God and abuse his law and not turn out justice. Like mighty men, they did the things they wanted to do the way they wanted to do them. So God is going to bring them down. He is going to humble them. He is going to abase them. The proud look of man will be abased. By the way, if you know that it is God who is going to punish the proud and going to give grace to the humble, if you know that going in, wouldn't the better part of wisdom be to humble up right away? I mean, certainly arrogance, pride within the church or within any relationship with Yahweh, pride is the last thing you should demonstrate. If you really understand who God is, what God has done, what Christ has done, who Christ is, and the astounding grace that saved you, that ought to make you exceptionally humble because you know that all you brought to the party was your depravity and your sickness, and your ugliness, and your sinfulness, and your rebelliousness. And then God changes you because he's going to be faithful to you, not because of you, but because of promises that he's already made to his son, which promises he's not going to break. And the proud look of a man will be abased, and the loftiness, the high look of men will be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. That's what this is all about. Yep. How many times have you heard me say, God is in the enterprise of glorifying himself. Here's Isaiah. He just gave us a synopsis of what this whole rest of the book is going to be. If you don't want to hear the whole rest of the Isaiah teaching, at least this message has just told you what the whole book is really about. The whole book is about God glorifying himself by the way that he is faithful to promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore he is going to be faithful to Israel. And that, by the way, is the same thing that you find in the New Testament. You find it in Romans 9, 10, 11, and Paul's discussion of God and Israel. He says the same thing. He comes to the conclusion that because of the election of grace, that Israel is beloved for the Father's sake because of promises that are made to the Father. And that's the reason he can say all Israel will be saved. Whether you're looking at the Old Testament, whether you're looking at the New Testament, it's a real consistent story in which God is glorifying himself. And the end result of everything he is doing and has done and declared himself to be doing is so that the Lord alone is exalted in that day, soli Deo 
Gloria. He gets all the glory all by himself. And there's none left for you. That's God's ultimate plan was to make sure that he saved people who were so wretched, so depraved. People like, you know, us. People who just simply could not help themselves or save themselves so that he would get all the glory in making trophies of grace out of completely corrupted, depraved, sinful creatures. And he's using Jerusalem as the example of that theology. And if he doesn't do it for Jerusalem, you have no reason to be confident that he'll do it for you. He has to do it for Jerusalem. He has to do it for you. Why? Because he said so. So that is the word of God. And we, as Christians who say we believe the Bible, have to believe that. Have to. You don't have a choice. If you say you believe the Bible, then you just believe everything we just read. You have to. That's what it is to be a Bible-believing Christian, is to believe that God is also faithful to Jerusalem. And that's why if you get Israel right, you get the Bible right. Got it? If nothing else, I hope you learned that our God is just phenomenally faithful. And you can walk out of here with confidence knowing that that's the God you serve. And by the way, if you know that's the God you serve, you have no trouble worshiping him. No trouble getting down in front of him and realizing you really, truly, genuinely are nothing in and of yourself and a trophy of grace when he picks you up. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.